0: Brought to you by lifetree at paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com my name again is rick i'm author of the god who fights for you and spiritual grit the book that was released last year with a couple of companion devotions to it and the jesus-centered life which is the birth mother for this podcast and i'm the general editor of the jesus-centered bible i'm also as i've mentioned on the last couple of podcasts i'm a godfather not that kind of godfather not, not like the severed head in the bed godfather, I'm a good godfather of this thing we call the Jesus-centered planner. The reason I'm a godfather is I had absolutely nothing to do with it, <laughs> except it kind of comes out of the whole stream of Jesus-centered things. Um, so, uh, so I've just made myself a godfather, <laughs> the Jesus-centered planner, but it's now in its third year, in the past two years, it has sold out. I mean, you know, you try things, you create things, and you don't know. Um, what's going to really connect with people. And we were, um, I mean, honestly speaking, here surprised by the how much people love this planner and how quickly it sold out. So um, like I said last week, I'm giving you a little heads up here that um, it's just been released. It's going to sell out again. So if you're a planner person, this is right up your alley. It will help you to not only plan your days and your weeks, but it will also rivet your attention on Jesus, help you to orbit around him in your everyday life. Who could ask for more than that? So it has some all new devotions, some prompts, and updated Bible readings, and a weekly calendar that now starts on Sunday instead of Monday. So it's a Christian-y calendar in that way. <laughs> it follows the church, the church week. So today is the seventh episode. In this series we're calling the Beeline Practices, which is basically the last two-thirds section of the book, The Jesus-Centered Life. That whole section is called the Beeline Practices. There's about 18 separate little ways that you can experiment with to live your life in a more close orbit around Jesus. So these practices are not um, shoulds or ways to try harder at your life or be more disciplined. They're just experiments in living in a different way. And um, some of them will, you know, resonate and some won't. And in fact, of those 18 beeline practices, if one or two of them feels like it's natural for you, then wow, that is a huge victory. So we are exploring all of them and uh, taking a creative dive into each of them. So in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of the Jesus Pushback. So, enjoying me today is a blast from the past. Many of you will recognize Steph Hilberry's voice right away. It sounds like this
1: Hey, everyone.
0: All right. So that, probably not enough of your voice to really recognize there, Steph. <laughs> so, maybe you could give him a short update on what you've been doing since the last time you were speaking into this microphone.
1: Okay. I think it's probably been maybe nine or 10 months mm-hmm. since I've been on this show. So, I'm very happy to be back. <laughs> Um, I got transitioned, moved into some other projects, um, which is why I've had to skip the show, but it is exciting to follow Jesus Centered Life, much like you, kind of as a participant on the outside, and I'm happy to pop in yeah. for this chance to yeah. connect with you guys it's and prob- talk about Jesus.
0: It's probably illegal that I have her on the show right now, but, but the, you know, we're going to keep it on the down low. <laughs> My so, lawyers won't know. That's right. So, I just saw, uh, for the first time uh, on Friday Night Past, the film The Case for Christ. So it's based on the book of the same name, and that book has sold like 14 million copies. It's just like one of the best-selling Christian books of all time. It was written by Lee Strobel, who is uh, a former um, editor for the Chicago Tribune. He actually was uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter investigative reporter, he was really good. To To win the Pulitzer Prize at a major American newspaper means you're at the top of your game. And uh, the film follows a story of the book, which uh, the book's genesis was that um, Lee's wife, Leslie, uh, through a, a complicated series of circumstances, decides to give her life to Jesus. And that upsets the whole apple cart of their family, because they have always been avowed atheists. They, they teach their daughter what atheism is and why they don't believe. Um, it's, part of, it's part of Lee Strobel's identity that he is an atheist. And then his wife tells him, hey, I've committed my life to Jesus. It creates tremendous strain in their marriage um, and, and uh, a lot of upheaval in their life, and it plunges Lee Strobel into despair, because he's trying to figure out a way to convince his wife... Out of this ridiculous belief in superstition and mythology. And so he, uh, somebody suggests to him, hey, you're a world-class investigative journalist. If you want your wife to come back out of this commitment she's made, why don't you explore the underpinning beliefs of Christianity, and that way you can show her why you can't go this direction, and maybe it will help draw her back From that, and he thinks this is a great idea. So on the down-low, he takes over this uh, basement office at the Chicago Tribune, unbeknownst to anybody, and sets up an operation where he's uh, out to disprove Christianity. And so he uh, has a huge whiteboard down there and um, has all kinds of displays and piles of resources, and he travels and he interviews people, and the end result is that You see this really brilliantly portrayed in the movie. I have to say the movie is, I don't know, have you seen the movie? I have not. So it is, I I don't really, I mean, true confession, I don't like Christian, quote-unquote Christian movies. They're usually poorly written, poorly acted, and and they just pound you with their message. So I just don't like them very much. But this showing of The Case for Christ was at my church, and Les and Leslie Strobel were going to be there. And there's only like three hundred people were gonna be there to watch this film and then afterwards we were gonna do a QA with them. So I thought this is this is a great opportunity. So but I was stunned by the quality level of this film. It was so well written, so well acted, so well directed. It just in every way looked like you know, a a normal major produced film, except it was better than most of them. It was just really, really well done. And so you follow this story of Lee Strobel trying to disprove all this stuff, and as he goes down the line um, and meeting with all of these really intelligent people, he keeps getting upended by these people. They're not at all what he thought they would be. They're really smart, critical-thinking people, and um, they appeal to that critical-thinking part of his, his, uh, his persona, and in the end he gets funneled into belief like, the film does this brilliant job of showing what a guy cornered <laughs> looks like, because he corners himself in the end. He, he doesn't want to believe, but he can't help but believe in the end, because he's done all the work to disprove it, and he can't. In fact, he has proven it to be true through, his, through this whole process. So it's really a fantastic film. It's, it's available on Netflix, by the way. If you're a Netflix subscriber, you can watch it for free. So I highly recommend it. It's also a great thing to talk about afterwards. It's a great spark for discussion. So the the thing that it highlights, though, is the beauty of critical thinking. I mean, um, the outcome obviously is is incredible in this in this story, but the, but it's hard to resist the beauty of really smart people following. The, the line of truth down to its foundation and discovering, wow, <laughs> this is all true, what Jesus said about himself is true. So uh, it's, it was so refreshing to watch a film where critical thinking was elevated. Um, it was, it was uh, framed, I think, in the way that Jesus intended when he said um, the, wh- the, the Christian life is about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, And strength, and in this film you see someone coming to love Jesus because he's using his mind to its greatest extent. So I think that critical thinking has become kind of a quaint habit, uh, a nostalgia kind of thing, actually. I I think about the books that were popular 50 years ago, um, and I love these books. They're books by C.S. Lewis and Malcolm Muggeridge and Dorothy Sayers and G.K. Chesterton. I grew up on these books. But they are so different than the books popular today. And Steph, have you rec- have you seen the same kind of thing? I don't know if you like old reading, sort of older Christian books, or newer ones, or what your what your particular taste is. But have you noticed the difference between older books and newer books at all? Oh,
1: sure. I mean, just more robust vocabulary. Um, with that comes an ability to hash out more complex thoughts. Hmm. Um, I think today we don't have the attention span for that kind of thing. Um, A lot of our communication channels restrict even the the character limit that you can use to convey a message. And so it forces us to say things succinctly, and we lose some of that complexity in that process.
0: Yeah, and this isn't really a critical thinking thing, but um, I'm still a newspaper subscriber. I get the Denver Post every day on my uh, driveway. And what I've noticed is, just like many other newspapers, in, in order to make that thing profitable, they've decided to take out the copy editors from that publication. So copy editors check facts and spelling and grammar mistakes and things like that. The paper's just full of them now. Mm. When I was in journalism school, if I turned in a, a story that had even one grammatical, factual, or spelling mistake, it got an automatic F. That was the way they trained you to be a journalist, you know, um, 30 years ago. Today, that standard would never fly. <clears throat> it's amazing the number of mistakes that are in the newspaper. So it's an example of some of the standards that have changed relative to to the words that we use. Um, but And it's not just <clears throat> these kind of grammar spelling mistakes. It's also the think the I think critical thinking has taken a hit in the age of social media, in the age of. Uh, you know, 140 character tweets and so forth, but <clears throat> the, the 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 startling difference between if if you read Mere Christianity, for instance, everyone thinks they've read Mere Christianity, but turns out very you know, not as many people as you think have read this classic book by C.S. Lewis. If you read that book, I was just hearing somebody describe this book to someone who'd never read it the other day, and she said, "Oh, be careful! This is a really this is a deep dive." You you really have to slow down to understand what he's saying here, but back in the day, <clears throat> not so much. We were conditioned to read critical arguments in a more critical way, um, but that's got kind of gone by the wayside. And if you, you think about our fitness regimen uh, in the in the Jesus Center life, I compare our need to go to fitness centers and health clubs and things like that to what was true fifty or sixty years ago when most people worked on a farm. And they didn't need a fitness center. <laughs> Their everyday life was hard enough physically. But we do because the Industrial Revolution has taken out that aspect of our life, so we need what what you might call artificial ways of keeping ourselves fit. And in the same way, um, I think our critical thinking muscle has suffered over the last 50 or 60 years, we need some artificial ways to grow that muscle again. So... I love, um, I, uh, I love what Leslie Newbigin, the British theologian and missionary, what he says. He says, what passes for reason in our culture is really a deep attachment to plausibility structures, and what he means, he means that reason has already decided what is plausible and therefore negates anything outside of those structures. So um, before we get into what plausibility structures are, Steph, mm-hmm. I'm wondering what role critical thinking has played in your life relative to the way your relationship with Jesus has grown?
1: So I'm a natural (laughs) thinker by default versus being a feeler, Um, which if you've taken Myers-Briggs before, you kind of understand that we tend to potentially favor one side or the other. Um, So because of that, my faith, I think, always has an element of critical thinking, and I tend to enjoy the more thoughtful, contemplative aspects of faith versus the ones that are more emotional. Um, And that's just that that's not right or wrong. That's just me. And that's kind of how I'm wired. So I do think that that critical thinking has played a big role for me. Um, I'm really protective of the kinds of things that I let leave an impression on me. I think I'm acutely aware of how impressionable I am, and so I guard the kind of things that influence me. And what that looks like kind of in a day-to-day basis is I, I'll i limit social media, not all the time, but sometimes if I sense that I'm getting overloaded. Um, I know that it's really popular to receive the coaching to read a lot of books from people that you admire, people who have good things to say, listen to a lot of podcasts, for instance, ironically, as we speak on a podcast, um, I really limit a lot of those types of things because it's easy for me to start adopting the thoughts of the people that are speaking. And I don't mind doing that, but when I start ping-ponging between every new thing that I hear and I recognize that it's influencing me, I start to feel uncomfortable because my critical thinking gets a little... Um, flabby, potentially, hmm. as a result of that.
0: So that's interesting that I've never thought about that before, that um, you said you're, you're, you're self-aware enough to know that you're very impressionable. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, I, the way I, I, I think I would compare that to is, if somebody wants to stay fit, the, the primary, I learned by losing 45 pounds that working out has some impact, but changing your eating habits has enormous impact. I learned this the hard way. Um, so if somebody wants to stay fit and, and they want to, uh, watch their eating habits, if they know that they are, have a tendency to eat certain foods that they just can't resist, mm-hmm. the best thing to do is, is avoid them mm-hmm. and not, not eat them in moderation. Mm-hmm. It's hard to eat in moderation. If you just know, I, I can't, I can't eat those in moderation. I, I love those things. And that's kind of he- what I hear in what you're saying. You're self-aware enough to know there's some things that i can eat and be okay with and some things i can i can't uh, I, I don't i don't trust how much that's going to impact
1: mm-hmm. me yeah i think there's just a limit critical thinking requires uh, a certain amount of space in your life like you mm-hmm. you need to give it you mentioned reading cs lewis you kind of have to slow down same with the bible i mean i know that on the show we talk a lot about this and when you read the bible there's a lot of value in slowing down and I think that when you are uh, inundated with lots and lots of stimulus, lots of information, lots of people's stories, lots of visual stuff, lots of other people's opinions, um, even, even the constant steady dribble of your own thoughts, um, your ability to take a step back and objectively be critical of that stuff is very hard. And so for me, it's easier if I kind of turn the valve down from what I let flow in in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I want to go back to Leslie Newbigin here. This He's a British theologian and missionary. Um, he did a lot of thinking about um, culture and our role in the culture, and how are we salt and light in the culture. A lot of that comes from his missionary experience, and um, this thing, this phrase that he created, plausibility structures, what it really means is, is that... Um, when somebody, somebody can pass off as reason something that simply validates their already decided um, plausibility structure. So, uh, for instance, in the film The Case for Christ, um, uh, Lee Strobel enters into these conversations with all of these people um, that he's pursuing to try to disprove the basics of the Christian faith. He enters into these conversations with certain sets of plausibility structures, meaning um, he he enters in by saying, it's certainly true, isn't it, that Jesus's um, body could have been stolen out of the tomb? Or it's certainly true, isn't it, that it's a possibility, at least, that uh, his he wasn't quite dead yet, and that he was revived somehow after he was taken off the cross. And he goes through the list of all the kind of popular... Um, uh, sort of assumptions and, and plausible narratives for why Jesus wasn't really resurrected, because this whole journey goes on. Um, somebody gives him some good advice that they basically say, if you narrow down this focus to disproving the resurrection, then everything else about the Christian faith uh, crumbles underneath that. So just disprove the resurrection, and you're good. And so that's what he sets out to do. But when he enters into these conversations with this plausible, these plausible arguments. They get destroyed in no time. Like these these historians, not even believers. Some of them say, "Well, um, it's really not possible that his body was stolen out of the tomb. Mm. The Roman soldiers guarding that cave would have been executed if that had happened um, on the spot. There is no excuse. They, they could they could defend themselves, but it wouldn't matter. They'd be executed on the spot." Um, and they go through other uh, proofs that his body could not possibly have been taken from the tomb. They go through he talks to a medical doctor who says the, the injuries that happened to Jesus are not survivable and when the spear was shoved in his side what came out was blood and water separate and basically he said that's proof that he was already dead that's what happens when you puncture someone someone who's already died So he goes through all of these uh, plausibilities after plausibilities and they just keep getting knocked down and Leslie Newbegin is saying the only way, that quote unquote reason seems to trump the the claims of Christ is because that reason is hanging on to weak plausibility structures that can easily be destroyed because they're pre they're there are pre-assumptions. So how do we how do we undermine this kind of stuff in our everyday life? Uh, like you said, Steph, we're surrounded by inputs into our life. Mm-hmm. Um, they're coming at us all the time. And it's not always easy to understand how they're impacting us. It's it's kind of like the frog in the in the boiling wa- in the boiling pot of water. You know, you just turn up the heat gradually, and then you realize, oh, I'm boiling. So that's what happens in our culture. Um, if we don't push back, if we don't have a sense of why critical thinking is so important in our life, then we're the frog in the kettle. Um, so um, I call this. The Jesus pushback, that's the beeline practice that we're diving into here, and it's it's very simple. It's essentially uh, um, adopting a, a, something that Jesus used strategically. He said, um, especially early on in his ministry, you have heard it said blank, mm-hmm. but I say um, the truth, uh, so especially early on in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 when Jesus is just launching his ministry, he comes out with sort of a a shotgun blast of, hey guys, these things that you think are givens, that you take for granted, they're actually not true. This thing, and this thing, and this thing, you think it's this, but actually in the kingdom of God it's this. Um, And he just blasts away at these things, it must have been shock and awe for the people that heard this, I think that's why he, he does he does something he doesn't usually do or doesn't do the rest of the time in his ministry. He doesn't just stand on a mountain and talk for three chapters. That that's not something he does later on, but he does it at the beginning. I think to just shock people into an awareness that they had co- they have accepted a, a huge number of givens that aren't really true. So he starts to go down the list and and out all of those givens. So. Let's go given hunting um, uh, ourselves. Steph and I are going to go through the Beatitudes and flesh out some common cultural beliefs and practices that Jesus outs as false givens. This is what it means to think critically, or another way of saying it is to leave, live the Jesus pushback in every area of our life. So in the Jesus-centered life, I list some of the, the uh, Beatitudes and and how Jesus contrasts these things. Um, so, for instance, um, when Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." So, if you think about what is he saying, he's saying that people who are poor in spirit um, and recognize their need for him, um, they inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, in the common um, in the common way we think about. Uh, who is privileged in our, in our culture, we don't think about people who are poor in spirit, who are um, sort of uh, desperately thirsty for help and rescue. Um, so I'm just thinking, I'm trying to uh, think out loud here, what are some examples in our culture of the opposite of what Jesus is saying? Can you think of anything, Steph, where he's saying the people who are poor in spirit are blessed, and they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, but in our culture, it's not that way. People believe differently than that. Can you think of anything that that represents that?
1: Well, let's define poor in spirit, because yeah, that's not good. a phrase we use very often. So poor in spirit, do we think that means they're humble, they're needy?
0: He adds something in there. He says um, the, those who recognize their need. Hmm. So... You know, poor in spirit, I, I, I relate to it because I often feel like desperately thirsty for Him, like very aware of my own weakness and my own need. I think that's what He's describing, and that can be unsafe in our culture to admit that you're needy. Like oh, even yeah. that, even that word, I'm a needy person. Mm-hmm. There is yeah, no, that's bad. There's no positive connotation. It's frowned
1: upon. <laughs> <laughs> we frown on that. <laughs> get it together, needy people. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> Learn how to be self sufficient. <laughs> what, are, what are some.
0: So, this would be interesting. So, Steph, and you, and when you think about these cultural influences that are around us, what are the influences that are saying, get it together? Don't be needy.
1: Oh, pretty much every kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, this, you know, psychology message that comes, yeah, there's a lot of. And this is America. There is a lot of very deeply entrenched belief that that what you want in life, you need to take and that what happens to you is your responsibility to orchestrate. And if you're needy, then you need to figure out a way to develop the inward fortitude and capacity to overcome that neediness so that you can move forward.
0: Yeah, you know what's funny about this, as you say this, too, I'm just thinking about the people in my life that have the most impact on me, Um, like they carry a weight with them that has the power to transform me. I would say they're all universally needy people who live with great strength. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it, that, that you could be a very needy person but operate in tremendous strength. I, I feel like um, I'm just trying to think of an example of this from my own life, but uh, on our small group night on Tuesday nights, I always go through the same half hour of terror <laughs> before this starts, because we're always trying really sort of experimental ways of engaging the heart of Jesus, and I never know how it's going to go. It's, there's a great deal of risk and mystery associated with everything we do, and, and so if you're about to lead 20 people through something, and you have no idea really how this is going to turn out, and this is every week that you have the same feeling, that half hour before it starts, I'm always reduced to this place of great need. And I have learned in my life that if I don't feel that, then something's wrong. I'm about to have a catastrophe, because it's in my need that I can enter into the strength of my leadership. Because I'm recognizing that my attachment and the strength that I need and the wisdom that I need is coming from Jesus. It's not my own resources. And it's a scary thing to go into a situation where you are your only resource, and I go into these situations knowing, because of my desperate need, I'm more attached to Jesus, and I can relax that I'm doing this together with Him instead of alone. Mm. I don't know how people, you know, sometimes people who come off as uber-confident, are just compensating for the absolute terror they have inside about their own insecurity and their own lack of resources. They cover it over with sort of ridiculous self-confidence, but to be able to live in a state of need and then live out of that strength, knowing that you're doing this together with Jesus instead of alone, I think that's how you get this feeling of, of both weakness and strength in people that really impact our lives. So Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So on the face of it. Um
1: I love morning. It's my favorite yeah. <laughs>
0: <Jeez>. <laughs> It's it's spelled with an O U, <laughs> Steph. It's not it's not the kind of morning thing. Um, so if you, let's say if you're at work and you pass by somebody who's weeping at their desk, mm. so what is your first thought?
1: Well, it's certainly not like oh they are I'm so envious right now of what they're going through. They are just blessed. <laughs> wow. You know, like, that's not my reaction. Yeah. <laughs> I don't automatically think to myself, God is really blessing them right now.
0: It's so good. And, and we think, and it's a little, like, scary, too, if somebody's weeping, because th- that means if you're tr- going to enter in, like, oh, what am I going to enter into? It's, it's too personal. Mm-hmm. And that what kind of investment is this going to require me? Am I going to embarrass the person? You know, people quickly wipe away their tears when they and they apologize oh, for the crying. Grief
1: is awkward. Oh, it yeah, is awkward. In our
0: culture, we apologize for our tears so it's true. much. We do. It's all the time. And I think about well, what is what is the beauty of mourning? What is what does mourning open us to that makes us blessed? What's something that pops into your head when I ask that?
1: Well. Uh, When I think about mourning, I think about losing people that I love. I mean, that's just the first thought that comes into my mind. And I do think that there is a certain um, beauty that we love deeply enough to feel a loss like that in Mm. a way that impacts us. And if we didn't, if we were indifferent to them leaving and we did not mourn, then that would be very Mm. tragic.
0: And I think the cousin to the word mourn is lament. And... I think mourning and lamenting, this is gonna sound funny, but I think it's a form of worship, because worship in the end is elevating the beauty and the power and the goodness of Jesus in our life. And when I mourn, I am saying, I'm not enough, I'm a little kid, I need you, you are big and I am small, you're the elephant and I am the mouse, um, and th- and this hurts. Um, it's almost, mourning almost, I mean, maybe tears is a, in a way a metaphor for um, the, the, the liquid that comes out of our, our eyes is, is sort of being emptied from our soul, that our soul becomes more empty when we mourn, and it creates space for him to fill. that might sound too rhetorical, but I feel like this. Whenever I'm mourning something, I feel like I have excised something from my soul That gives him space to come in there now and to fill me up where uh, before, when I held back the morning, there was no room for him in it. Um, I don't know how often you mourn, Steph, but maybe you could tell. I really try
1: not to do it often.
0: Tell everyone on the podcast how often (laughs) you mourn.
1: <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about Jesus turning things on their head, and I think that he he points this out because don't we all want to avoid mourning at all costs? I yeah. mean, don't we spend an enormous amount of energy in our lives trying to avoid mourning? We push it out, we we protect, we. I mean, we really have a lot of schemes to protect ourselves from circumstances that would cause us to mourn. And here he is saying, "Hey, mourning is a blessing," and I think, or or blessed are the people who are mourning. And that is very countercultural. We don't yeah. like that it goes against to to us mourning is um, it is more it's like a curse we want to avoid.
0: Yeah, we much prefer anger, resentment, and revenge.
1: Or or love and happiness also.
0: Those two. I mean, but I mean <laughs> I mean if the thing that causes you the, the thing that, that could cause you to mourn, we often take that impetus and instead of mourning, we turn it into anger sure. and Well, that's easier. And and uh um, yeah, it's it's not only easier, it's more culturally accepted. So when's the last time we saw somebody who had done something wrong, who in public mourned the impact of what they had done on others? It's rare. Mm-hmm. Instead, we see defensiveness and anger and, um, you know, posturing and all this kind of stuff that, again, need, leaves no room for the grace of Jesus to come in and actually restore anything. So uh, here's another one. Um, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Mm. The gentle
1: yeah. inherit mm. the earth? Pass. Like, we what like does that. that
0: mean? Like, the, the, the gentle get all the real estate? Uh, what is that? The gentle inherit the earth. What do you think that—how well, do you translate that?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I think I immediately just think about how everything around us says the very opposite. I mean, it's strength is highly praised— the, we talk a lot about being resilient. We talk about being strong. Uh, we talk about being a force. I mean, that's sort of like, your, you know, it's a compliment. Like, oh, she's a force or he's a force. Gentleness is kind of um, soft and squishy. I, I mean, you know, we like moms to be gentle. But outside of that, I don't think that's a quality that we tend to elevate in terms of what is admirable.
0: Yeah, and we have to, st- we have to say that in our culture, um, the prescription for succeeding in life is pushing your way to get what you want. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody on TV, especially in reality shows, say, follow your dreams. Your dreams, if you just push hard enough, any dream is possible. You hear it constantly. And the, the idea there is that if you just sacrifice enough and push hard enough, mm-hmm. you can make any dream come true. And I think it's a false narrative in the American culture. Yes, there are there are many examples of this truth of people who push hard enough to get their dream. But then probe a little deeper into those people's stories. And are they at peace in their life? Are they satisfied with who they are and what their life is like? They have seized the, you know, the the uh, the trophy, but are they—is it worth it in the end? I have to say, I mostly hear these people say it wasn't. I just heard Elton John on an interview the other night on um, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's show, and he, he has just released his autobiography, and so he was talking about the book and about his life in a very mournful way. He's at a place now in his life where he's going to stop touring and he, he wants to just stop in general and, and enjoy life, but you get the feeling that, um, uh, that what he's craving is something he's never experienced so far in his life, um, just peace. Uh, and, and he looks back on episodes in his life that are—he uh, just winces when he talks about them, and yet he's, he's made his dream come true. <laughs> so I think it's kind of an American myth in some ways that pushing your way to the top— is really what success looks like, and when I think about gentleness, I, I'm thinking about um, my friend Tom Melton, who's my pastor for many years, he once told me this illustration that I, I can't get out of my head. He said, you know, a professional athlete, when you see them like in an NFL game, a receiver make a catch after running 40 yards down the field, and they, and they, and they tap their toes right before the sideline, and they fall out of bounds with the ball in their hands. He said the reason they're professional athletes is they're able – all of their strength is, has been sort of focused to be able to do the most dainty of things on the fly, to tap those toes. The, the way you know how strong they are is how restrained they are in their strength. And I think that's such a powerful image. So when I think of gentle, I think of people who are gentle have a restrained strength. In them
1: well, and this was partly, I'm sure, Jesus' way too of talking about how he's different because mm. in that era and in our era, um, inheritors were often conquerors, they were military leaders, they were ruthless men who would knock over a ruling, you know, family or regime in order to supplant them. And there was an expectation that Jesus would, would operate in that role to some extent. I mean, I think his followers certainly. The crowd of people who followed him were wanting some kind of show of force, establishing of his rule in a way that felt a lot more like a kickback to when David and Solomon were kings. And he's saying the gentle inherent and his and then he follows it up with everything he does after that. Um, And I think that totally it's a completely different paradigm from anything that we know about rulers and how humans take power, and lead.
0: Yeah. And all of these that we're, that we're marching through here, you can see um, what you said earlier, Steph, that to think critically about these things means to slow down and consider what you're putting in your mouth. Uh, you, that, that's how you would get better at staying fit, by eating better. You'd consider what you're putting in your mouth. And in, the, in our soul, in our mind, we consider what we're putting into our mind. We consider what we're putting into our soul, and we, and we look at the nutrition label on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. We take a look at it and see, well, what, what is that really? It's what Lee Strobel did in The Case for Christ. He slowed down and considered these plausible beliefs that he had before to see if they were really true, and he discovered they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only in slowing down and paying attention do we discover this. So it is a lifestyle to live this way, to live in a Jesus-pushback way. You can't simply accept, with open arms, everything that comes your way. You instead are awake to everything that comes your way, and inside you're thinking what Jesus said. You have heard it said, blank, but I say, blank. It's a way of thinking that if I hear a given in my life, something that is seems to be an embraced truth, like unadulterated, nobody's pushing back against it, it's a given. So especially with the givens in life, we say, well, I've heard it said that, but what would Jesus say to that? Would there be any different spin on it for Jesus? Let's do one more here, when uh, I think this is the one with the most edge. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, not because of just anything, but because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, yeah, another happy <laughs> dance for Steph over here.
1: <laughs> so This is a great list. Yeah, it is.
0: <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think maybe this is the most universal thing on this list, though. If you said to somebody, would you like it if in your daily life you got insulted and persecuted? Like, you'd have to be a masochist to say yes to that. We hate this probably more than anything else, the idea that we would be surrounded by insults and criticism every day would be like the worst kind of torture. It would just destroy your identity. And so when he says that, um, on the contrary, rejoice and be glad about this, for your reward in heaven is great, well, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a reward later on, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) But how do you interpret this? Why would Jesus Why would Jesus approach this in a kind of a positive way? What What's some possible reasons why?
1: I mean, I, I don't like any of it. I'm not really—I wish he would have said something different <clears throat> here. But I do think about Paul, who was um, irritating this group of people who were kind of preaching a mixture of Christianity plus circumcision. And he was talking about how he made some comment about I must be, people are saying we're speaking the same message, but how can that be? Because they hate me and they're flinging insults at me all the time. So obviously if I wasn't making them mad, then I wouldn't be preaching the truth. I mean, I think that was sort of his filter was unless somebody's mad, I'm not proclaiming something that's true. And I think you could take that to an extreme. It kind of reminds me of this guy that I knew who was really gifted in sales. And he used to say, if I don't get a request for at least one refund, then I know I'm not pushing hard enough. I'm not selling hard enough. Wow. And huh. I think that um, Paul felt a little bit that way. Like, if I'm not getting pushback, then then I'm not doing my job. And I think that um, – I think what what that means is that he felt – a commitment to speaking the truth. He felt a lot of compassion, sort of a fatherly affection for the churches that he had um, been a missionary to, and anytime there was a false message that came through, he wanted to make sure that he was different, and in doing so, they attacked him, and mm-hmm. I think he felt like that was evidence that he was doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of... Um In Matthew 15, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to come, this bloody, horrible thing that's about to happen where he's crucified and he's buried, and all of their kind of uh, 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 misdirected hopes that he would be a a messiah who is going to, in a military way, lead them out of their oppression, were going to come crashing down. Even though he's repeatedly said, I'm not that sort of messiah, it's still hard to to blot out um, centuries of thinking about what the messiah was going to be they'd always knew that that the they'd always been taught that the messiah was going to release them from their oppression mm-hmm. and so to hear jesus talk about dying and going away was just it was not only grievous that it was confusing to them so in matthew 15 he's preparing them for what life is going to be like when he's physically not there anymore and he says essentially well the world's going to hate you mm-hmm. Because the world hates me, and you are mine now. You don't belong to the world anymore. you belong to me, and that means <clears throat> however they treat me, they're gonna treat you. And um, surprise, <laughs> celebrate. Uh, but uh, we we were focusing on that very scene the other night at our small group and because one of the I'm, we're going through a series now where we've asked uh, the young people in the group, Uh, Throw out your questions, I had them write them down, Uh, any question you've wrestled with or struggled with relative to your relationship with Jesus or life in general, and we'll pick out some of these, and we'll start there with your question and find our way to Jesus. And we're in the middle of doing that now, and one of the questions was, why does God allow in the world such vicious, hateful attitudes toward Christians to continue why Why all the? Why does he let all this negativity about Christians continue? And I thought it was a, you know, it's an honest question from a kid. It has some flaw in the first place that God would somehow unilaterally say, you can no longer think ill of my children. <laughs> he, he would be violating free will when he did that. So the question itself has that kind of embedded flaw in it, but behind it is um, this kind of belief that you know, if if we're um, if we love Jesus and we're living our life for Him, shouldn't the world applaud that? Shouldn't the world respect that? Why is it that they hate it? Uh, and, and it gets back to this sort of universal feeling that we don't we don't really enjoy being persecuted and people f- saying all kinds of false evil about us, and that's that's not our you know that's not our wheelhouse. <laughs> so the, the question is really honest in that, well, why does God let this happen? And as we explored this at the end, what we embraced about what Jesus was saying is, underneath all this, he's saying, this is proof that you belong to me. This is proof that you're now in my family. Um, Because when they start treating you the same way they treated me, um... It's the last little exclamation mark on the fact that you belong to me now, mm-hmm. and that you're becoming like me. Your attachment to me is making you like me, and the thing—the same things that they hated about me, now they see in you. And it, it's maybe little comfort in the moment, but in the bigger picture, it's like, yes, 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 Jesus, we've been adopted. Yeah, we get it. But actually, what happens when your adoption... Is so complete that no one can tell the difference between you and the way your parents are. Your adoptive parents are. People would guess that you're a biological child of them because you're so like them. That's what he's trying to say, that you become so like me that that it's natural that people would think you're part of my family and oh, by the way, they hated a lot of things that I said and did. <laughs> so it's it's that kind of I think it's I think there's truth underneath that that he's trying to get at, that he's trying to reiterate to his disciples before he leaves, hey, you guys belong to me, therefore, this is what you can expect.
1: Yeah, um, and also maybe don't expect to win a popularity contest.
0: Yeah, that's so good, yeah. <laughs> Because we have, an, we have an innate sense that that's what... This we think should...
1: that's how it should go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we really do. We think that's how it should go, which, I know I said this mm-hmm. before, and I really believe it from the bottom of my heart, Jesus is the worst self-help guru ever. <laughs> he is the worst. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, like, it, no one would buy his book. I mean, except that we all, of course, own his book, but still, yeah.
0: the worst. It's almost as if <laughs> he thinks there's some other place that we're going to live the rest of our life <laughs> where... None of this will be true. <laughs> it's almost as if that he thinks that this is like just temporary. How can that be? Yeah. So yeah, temporary sometimes feels like permanent, though. It's right? a real mm.
1: long temporary. Yeah, it is a
0: long temporary. <laughs> Unless it's compared to eternity, and then well, yeah. But we're not in eternity. We're not right there now. yet. Yeah. So so uh, I was talking about the small group and um, one of our missions in this in the small group is literally, um, um, it's, I don't talk about this a lot with the group, but my intention is that these kids would learn how to think critically and biblically about life, about Jesus, about their life, about the messages they get back from their culture, that they would have embedded in them the Jesus pushback, and, it would, and once it's there, it stays with you the rest of your life. Really, the, the, the progression toward the Jesus pushback is once you get this in you, where you're awake and alive to the influences coming at you and you learn to think critically about them, then it will always be there. It won't go away. It's like flipping a switch that can never be turned off. And one metaphor, I think, for how well how do you get to that place, I think it's it's, uh, going back to the fitness metaphor, it's resistance training. The way you build your muscles is you have to push against something hard that weakens your muscles. The way you build your critical thinking is... You have to expose yourself to things that you end up pushing back against, or or there's really two forks in this road, I think. One is you expose yourself to um, critical thinking about Jesus, the Christian life, so forth. When you read, you read things that challenge you to think critically about those things. The other way is to put yourself in positions where you're facing oppositional truths. In yeah, your, I mean,
1: being in relationship with people who don't see, eye-to-eye. especially <laughs> being in relationship with people who are not Christians and don't follow Jesus, I mean, that's been one of the most enriching things that I think I've ever—it's it, shaped my faith so strongly. Say more about that. Well, when you're, when you're with somebody who doesn't have that same paradigm, um, not only does it cause you to think critically about it, but it gives you—I um, think it gives you a lot of compassion. I think that— it gives you an opportunity to really think through why, why do I believe what I believe? And what are some things, maybe some plausibility structures I've picked up from that's sort of a mesh of Christianity, but also kind of flavored with my own cultural preferences and my own comfort zone. Um, to have that poked at, I think is is really good. And to have it poked at, By people that you can respect. I mean, we just finished out recently where Ellen DeGeneres came out and talked about how important it is to be in relationship with people who don't have the same views that you do. Um, And she was really celebrated for that. And I think that that's... um, a good reminder to all of us, and it shapes critical thinking. It's what Jesus did, and it's what we need to be doing.
0: Yeah, and you're referencing—I just love that story that you're referencing that she had her picture taken in mm-hmm. a Dallas Cowboys football game sitting next to George Bush mm-hmm. and got hammered online for it, and then you should watch what she says on her show, the whole statement she makes about it, because I thought it was prophetic and— pra- It pro- beautiful. It was profound. Mm-hmm. She was essentially saying what— Um, we wished we all believed, but we've descended way lower than Mm -hmm. what she's describing, and she basically said, you know, I say to be kind to people, and I mean be kind to all people, not selectively, and, you know, she's living out one of the Beatitudes when she says that. Um, it It was a powerful statement, but it also stuck out in a culture where we have retreated to our own little bubbles, and one thing I'll say here is, if you want to become... Grow your critical thinking muscle more, and I urge you to do it because Jesus said to love Him with all of our mind. Critical thinking is the way we do that. Um, If you want to grow in that, you're going to have to get out of your bubble of the news channel you watch or listen to, the newspaper you read, the people that you talk to that all agree with you. Mm -hmm. All of this produces mushy thinking. If you are never exposed in an honest way, to the arguments on the other side, whatever the other side is for you, then you're not going to be a critical thinker. You won't be able to... Uh, you know, my wife and I talk often about... Um, she, she was raised in a uh, East Coast Irish Catholic family that venerated the Kennedys. So in her home go- growing up, it was definitely a democratic home. Mm. Mine was the polar opposite from that growing up. And we're married, and we have discussions all the time uh, about... And we, we've somehow—this is the beauty of marriage—we've somehow, in our critical thinking in our marriage, have come to a place of balance, I think, in, in, some, of, in some of how we see the world. And well, one of the things she often says is she's very—because my wife reaches out to refugees as part of her life—she's very upset by the current U.S. policy toward immigrants and refugees. She's, it, it, she literally can uh, be brought to tears over this. And she will say it's wrong, and what I will say back to her is, then what should the alternate policy be for immigration? And she will sometimes say, I don't know right now. I, I don't know enough. And I said, but it's actually on us to understand if we're opposed to the, the immigration policy as it is today, then what, we, what would we suggest that is more fair and reflective of Jesus instead? What is it? Um that's where critical thinking comes in, and I, I think we have a responsibility to think critically, and not just say, I don't like that. Okay, well, what what is reflective of Jesus instead? The only way that'll happen is if you legitimately get out of your bubble and listen to people that you don't agree with, and try to understand where they're coming from. Um, so uh, I think that's what Ellen was trying to say. You know, I don't agree with a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. George Bush says, but... You know, I, I'm his friend. I like him. Mm-hmm. So that just sounds strange. How can those two things coexist? It only sounds strange because of the age we live in right now. So so critical thinking starts by getting out of your bubble and trying something new. Read something that makes you think. Um, listen to something that makes you mad. <laughs> that, that's a way of putting it. Any last thoughts here, Steph, before we no, sign off? No, that's good. All right, there we go. That, my friends, is season four, episode 41. You can uh, go to our website, payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com, and find links to things we talked about today. Don't forget about the Jesus Center Planner. It will be gone before you know it, so there'll be a link on our page if you want to go check that out. And next week we'll be back with episode 42. Who knows if it'll be just me or who will be behind the other mic, but we'll find out next week. Uh, This, again, is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.